Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the Pie Factory Podcast. I hope everybody out there is having just such a wonderful Ferg. Once again, welcome to another side-splitting, action-packed, laugh-a-minute episode of the Pie Factory Podcast, starring yours truly, you know me, you love me, Jimmy G. And somebody that you might know and you might love, and he might be in Chicago... Well, actually, I, I really am right now. I actually, I actually, literally, literally am in Chicago right now. Literally, literally. Are you there figuratively as well? Uh, I don't know. Ah, uh, that's uh, another thing. I can't say figuratively, but I can definitely say literally. literally. Paradox. <laughs> so, how is everything going in Chicago? Well. I, I guess you're technically in Chicagoland if you are in Chicago. Yeah, there's not much more Chicagoland you can get other than being in Chicago. What's my name this week? Uh, let me see. What was it? Last week was uh, MC Sean. Before that uh, was Janitor right. Sean. Something has got to be like snappy and radio-y. Uh, let me see. Let me think here. Um, that could be dangerous. Sean, the super jock. No, nah, that was Larry Lujak's gag. Rest in peace. How about Ferg Sean or Phil Sean? Mm, nah, nah, it's it's too portmanteau. Ooh, Sean Meister. Let's do the Sean Meister. So, Jim. Jimmy G. Making cappies. Oh, gosh. We are really scraping the bottom of the barrel with the humor now when we're making cappies. Getting vaccinations. Good thing we're bi-weekly now, because uh, when you go weekly, you get to the bottom real quick. Yes, yes, and it's not like we haven't been there. It's a good thing we know how to hold our breath, though. Mmm! I don't know what that was for. I just felt like saying, mmm! So, uh, do you have any addendum and errata? Oh! Oh, wow, you took me by surprise, because, um, you know, we always do this show, and I always forget that we're doing that. And now that I think about it, there was a comment on our uh, thread on Atari Age. Yes, and uh, that's exactly what I am thinking of right now. Um, by the way, that's one additional way you guys can all get a hell of us. Get a hold of us. Hold. And a hell yeah. of us, too. Yes. Yes. You can get a hold of us on the Atari Age Forum in the Gaming Publications and Websites Forum. And uh, there's a Pie Factory podcast thread there. And you can uh, just leave a message there because we check that almost daily because we demand attention. And um, That's right. And so you can always uh, check that out. There's also a Pie Factory podcast thread on Arcade.com. Uh, the only is thing true. is it doesn't have the actual name of the podcast in it. It's more like, new Arcade podcast! And a yes. uh, very lively conversation involving, well, just me. <laughs> and you know what? I've got an Arcade.com account. I just don't really use it. Except that you used it when you, uh, when you what was it, Gyrus that you uh, kicked ass on in Underground Retrocade? Gyrus, 104,250 points, which yep. is a game we're going to be talking about next week, by the way. That's right, for episode 13 or yeah, next episode Fortnite 13. or something. Lucky whatever. 13. But yeah. hey, um, as long as we're here uh, reading some stuff from Soul Blazer that was posted on the Atari Age forums, uh, mm -hmm. great episode as always, guys. Well, that's debatable. Oh, thank uh, you, Soul Blazer. <laughs> which he's got the uh, Atari Jaguar podcast now, I do believe. No, 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 I'm sorry. He's on no, the, that's uh, Shinto. The, no, that's right. That's Shinto. He's on the, and of course it's in his signature, he's on the Sneeze podcast, the SNES. Yes. Is it kind of offensive to people that owned a Super Nintendo to call it the Sneeze? That's what we always called it. I don't know. I didn't like the Super 
Super Nintendo. So. Oh, I, I, I loved it for what it was. It had a great selection of games. I don't think it, in personal well, we'll opinion, get to that. We'll, we could get to that. We could get to that. We'll get to that. We'll get to that eventually. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. But uh, I totally understand the move to a bi-weekly format. It's the same reason I changed my podcast to every two weeks to allow for in-depth coverage of the game we are doing next while allowing for real-life stuff and to not get burned out. Well, the in-depth part is kind of questionable on this show. But anyway, <laughs> always glad to see non-Star Wars fans enjoying Star Atari Star Wars. I'm a huge sci-fi guy, Star Wars, Star Trek, Doctor Who being my big three. So I think that... Uh, you really need to turn in your uh, geek card, and I only have to turn in two-thirds of it. Uh, of course, I did like the Star Trek movies from the 80s, at least two, three, and four. Let me see here. I'm a huge sci-fi guy, and the arcade game just blew me away first time I played it. Fun Spot in New Hampshire has a sit-down model, as well as a stand-up, I think, a stand-up. Oh, by the way, uh, after, we record, after we listen to that show, our that episode of our show, <laughs> that episode, episode 11 of our show the other day, I went on eBay just to look around, and uh, there was two sit-down versions of the Star Wars arcade game for sale. One was $5,000. Uh, the other one was $2,500. It, uh, the $2,500 one worked good, but it had some cosmetic damage. Well, if it worked good, then maybe you can play it and get a well score. Shut up. <laughs> It's something my physics teacher used to say whenever he heard someone say, hey, did you do good on this? Yeah, he did good, and he got a well score. Shut up. <laughs> so, uh, But there was cosmetic damage on it. But uh, continuing with Soul Blazer here, really, this game could be considered the first on-rail shooter ever released. An on-rail shooter being defined as where you are either directly controlling the ship or are right behind it and have limited movement of your ship, thus giving the impression that you're on rails. He says, though, I tot disagree totally about Sega's Star Wars Trilogy Arcade, though. Effing love that game. I'm sorry, that's not effing, that's fing. Fing yeah, love fing. that game. Almost as much as Atari Star Wars. It's a sad day when my local D&B, Dave and Busters, took it out. Luckily, it plays pretty well on MAME these days, and you're right, both games play okay with the mouse. In fact, I recall having at one time a fan-made version of Star Wars Arcade on my PC, where the mouse was the main movement control, and it worked pretty well. Uh, some minor corrections. Okay, this is geared toward you, Sean. How did you not know about the Shield and Phoenix when Ferg just recently covered the game in depth on the 2600 podcast? Thank you, Soul Blazer, but that is not a correction. That is just a, po a pointing out of ignorance that wasn't there. Um, quite simply because I hadn't yet heard that episode when we recorded. I listened to it literally the next day because I had a lot of other podcasts I had to catch up on listening to. And uh, Vanguard is not connected with Konami in any way. Vanguard was developed by TOS, T-O-S-E, and published by SNK in Japan. Yes, that SNK. And that was in all caps, so that's important. Remember that. Yes. Uh, they were a small company back then, so they licensed the U.S. rights to Centauri for distribution. And you know what? I want to think I remember, now that I think about it, that SNK did do Vanguard. But back then, there was a... Um, Konami and Centauri were connected, and it seems like in a few ways, but, well... As he goes on here, Konami and Saturi were separate companies. They did work together pretty closely. Back in those days, Konami licensed many of their arcade games due to other companies for release in the States. Centuri released a bunch of Konami games in the arcade this way. They were never connected in a formal sense. The first game was in 74, when they f and they filed for bankruptcy in 85 due to the video game crash. I'm assuming he talked. he's talking about Centuri there, because Konami's still an ongoing concern. Right. Parker Brothers did indeed have the video game rights to sell all, to all Star Wars games during the Golden Era. However, that was only for home release. With the arcade games, Atari had the license, so you had Parker Brothers publishing Star Wars on home consoles as Atari couldn't do it themselves. 
The same thing existed with Tron. Midway had the arcade rights, but Mattel had the home rights. I think the uh, the thing we're thinking, the uh, what we were, why we were bringing that up though, is because we, we we understood that Parker Brothers did have the home video game rights to the Star Wars games, and Atari had the arcade rights to them. But we were kind of wondering. I I guess we didn't really make this clear if uh, Parker Brothers programmed the Star Wars arcade game for the home consoles and put Atari's copyright on it, or if Atari themselves programmed it, but since they couldn't release it, then they had to sell it to Parker Brothers, who did there. We were just wondering kind of about the uh, logistics of it, basically. Because, uh, I th- like I said, I, th- I think that would be a pretty interesting story to be, uh, to be told there, because it is weird when you pop something in, and it says it's from Company X on the label, but it's from Company Y on the copyright when you see it on the screen... You're like, huh, what's up with that? So, let's see, he said the same thing existed with Tron. Midway had the arcade rights, but Mattel had the home rights. Uh, Here's the thing, though. Is Tron the same in the arcade as it is on the home version, though? There has only been one home version of the Tron arcade game. The Game Boy Advance. It was part of the Tron 2.0 killer app cartridge. It'd be interesting... To think about, like, all the games that were in the arcade, and then when they came out on, like, the 2600, under the same title, completely Mm -hmm. different games, such as Tron, Journey, well, in the arcade, it was Journey Escape, and at home, it was just Journey. Yeah, I know, I got it wrong. At home, it was Journey Escape, in the arcade, it was just Journey. Sorry. (laughs) And, of course, Krull, completely different game. Oh, and Soul Blazer continues in another post here. Uh, oh. By the way, for the record, I am one of those souls who has always read the manual to games going back to the 2600 days. Before e- I... <laughs> Good night, folks. Before I even start playing. Still do that today, if they include one, that is. I always like being prepared and informed before playing anything. Well, you know what they say, ignorance is bliss, and I'm the happiest person alive. Yay! Yay! And um, RJ on the Atari Age Forum as an addendum. Uh, FYI, Robert Mruzek, the Star Wars Arcade High Score guy, is in, is the guy in King of Kong who is in the apartment reviewing Steve Weebies and several other videotaped submissions. So that was pretty cool. Which I totally f- forgot about. And Phil, the No Swear Gamer, has... Hey, um, Phil. Hi, Phil. Ketchup time. But I like mustard. Mm, ketchup. Actually... With uh, when it comes to Chicago style hot dogs, really any hot dog, you never put ketchup on it. That's right. It's not just a Chicago thing. I yes. wish people would stop saying it's a Chicago. And thing. I corrected myself. Oh yeah, yes you did. Yes you did. But they do Kansas City, same thing. New York, same thing. Montreal, they don't put ketchup on hot dogs either. But here's here's something I just recently made exception for specialty ketchups. Like my wife bought me a really 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 good jalapeno ketchup. So I could see something that's got a little more to it than just plain ketchup, like Tabasco maybe, or or something like that. But regular straight up ketchup, no. And even then, only sometimes. Sometimes if we go to Taco Bell, I'll save those little packets of the fire sauce, put those on my hot dogs. Yum. But anyway, Phil, no swear gamer, ketchup time. Good job as always. Um, speaking of arcade games with in-game microtransactions, I can think of two. Double Dragon 3 allowed you to buy power-ups and items with your quarters, and the main event allowed you to buy more energy. Seeing as I've never played Double Dragon 3 or the main event, that's interesting information. But I still hold that Lost Tomb might have been the first to allow you to buy power-ups and whatever in-game. 
Let me see here. I too like the 2600 version of Phoenix over the arcade, even though of even thought. I mean, he means though, even though of course the arcade version looks better. I still like the arcade a little bit more because there's a few things missing, but the uh, the home version of Phoenix is extremely good. And honestly, since I got them both on my com, um, I, I can't say I have them both on my computer. Since I have access to both of them through through channels that may or may not be legal, I can play whichever one I feel like at the time and still play the game feeling satisfied. He says that he believes Star Wars on the Sega 32X was based on the original arcade game. And I think he might be right. I only have ever played it once in emulation. This was years ago before I had a computer powerful enough to play it. And I think he's right on that. What is this 32X? Oh, the 32X? Um, It was an add-on for the... Sega Genesis it plugged into the top oh. and there were special cartridges for it. And uh, it was supposed to give it the power of the Sega Saturn without people having to go buy the Sega Saturn or actually be able to play the games that are on the Sega Saturn. Or participate in that controversial radio contest, drive your Saturn to Saturn for a Saturn. A lot of people died in that one. Drive your Saturn to Saturn to play the arcade game Satan of Saturn. Satan of Saturn, that's a throwback to our old friends over at No Quarter. Miss you guys. But um, I, I think he's right on the Star Wars on the 32X being, being based on the original Atari arcade game. And uh, he says, looking forward to playing the contest just for fun, since he's already good on 2600, systems. And um, he was wondering also in another post, do we have a limit on the years games come out? I know it's most of your games are early to mid-80s. I'm guessing it's because of the era you grew up. And um, you already answered that. But... Um, Yes, uh, we, we're kind of using 95 as the cutoff. Uh, it's not the classic era, but it seems to be that's when a really, really several years earlier is when the arcade pretty much translated, trans, uh, started the transition to all the one-on-one Street Fighter Mortal Kombat games that I absolutely hate and suck at. I was never good at any of those. Even the original one, Karate Champ, which was mid to late 80s, if I recall correctly, hate them. I can't play them. They're just too complex. Just give me something where I can just shoot and you know, shoot and not think. I don't think most of the time anyway, but, uh, you know, so give me something to shoot. So, oh, and by the way, uh, No Swear Gamer, he has the 7800 Game by Game podcast. And check out his YouTube channel. As much as I love his 7800 Game by Game podcast, I really like his YouTube channel better. He's really got a great thing going there. Not saying his 7800 Game by Game podcast is bad. Far from it. It's one of the best podcasts out there. But his YouTube channel, if his podcast is as good as I say it is, just imagine what his YouTube channel is. That's all I'm going to say. He's funny. He's got a great sense of humor. And, well, he's the no-swear gamer. He doesn't have to swear. We, we, we don't really swear too much on our show, but we're not totally family-friendly either. I like to think of our show as PG-13, because, you know, we go around the Temple of Doom pulling people's hearts out with our bare hands. So, you know, I think we're, uh, given that, we're PG-13, so. That's that's fair. And my, my YouTube channel is going to be a little bit uh, harsher than that, by the way, but. And uh, I think this is the last one. S1500 has another comment. The earliest he remembers for arcade DLC was Gauntlet for more health. I don't know if I would really consider that DLC. It's um, Lost Tomb was before then. I mean, well, he's just going off of his memories, but I don't know if I would really consider that DLC. What do you think about that? I really don't know, because honestly, the only time I ever played the arcade gauntlet was uh, in 2011 when 
You uh-huh. and your daughter and I went to uh, No Limit Arcade in Algonquin, which I really? believe relocated. Because I'd always played the, the Commodore 64 version. I played the heck out of that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I didn't even know that there was a pay for health feature. Yeah, so you can put tokens in and gain more health. I'm just wondering if that's more of a continue model. Hmm. I don't know, because because when you're out of health, you can still put coins in to continue. Well, maybe we can... Well, do you think we should cover this for a future episode, maybe? Yeah, we should talk about that in a future episode. I think he, I think he brings up a good uh, a good question there that needs to be addressed. Oh, and you know what? I be- That is the end of the Atari Age stuff, right? I think so. That is the end of the Atari Age. You got anything more to add? I have an addendum going back to episode yes. two, and that's kind of a-, a newsy in a little bit of a way. You know what I did? What did you do? You know what I did, everybody? What did you did? I successfully emulated Firefox. Yay! So I finally got to play it with all the nice video backgrounds and everything. Woohoo! Except I didn't have a good controller on me at the time, so it kind of sucked. But yeah, it turns out, and in fact, I know I'm not the only person who was having trouble running Firefox successfully. Mm-hmm. Um, not only do you have to have the Chud file, but you have to run the 64-bit version of Main. Because when I did a directory display um, on my Mac, I saw MAME and MAME64. I was like, MAME64? And I tried that. And suddenly I was getting nice little sky and airplane. I was like, whoa! So you gave it, obviously you gave it around. So I'm glad you finally got it going. And what's crazy is I tried the same thing on my MacBook. My my iMac is from 2011. My MacBook is from 2007. Mm Mm-hmm. And MAME64 doesn't run on that thing for some reason, which is weird yeah. because it run, it is a 64-bit processor on that. So I don't know why it's not running on that. But, Fascinating. Oh well. But you got it running. That's what matters. Yeah. Now I got to go catch it. So is that everything we got? Anything to uh, attend? Anything to a rat? Ooh, poetry. Um, I got nothing. Uh, do you have any news? No, that's pretty much it. Well, too bad because I have news. And unfortunately, since no quarter is still gone and not back, hopefully, yet is the operative word, uh, we have to carry on their tradition of announcing things that by the time you're hearing this will have already happened. As we speak right now, Kong Off is happening in Pittsburgh. Oh, yes. Walter Day. I saw Richie Knuckles posting some pictures of it. You know, of course, the usuals are there. You know, Billy Mitchell, Hank Chen, Steve Wiebe. And there, there's a big. It's amazing how big a crowd they get for that too. I mean, it's. I mean, I remember here. I think Mike McGinnis was talking about that. He said he went to that once, and he's like, "Yeah, it's really cool for for a little while, but then I kind of got bored." Because <laughs> how 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 long can you actually sit around watching people play the same video game over and over and over? Oh, by the way, Billy Mitchell got the first kill screen of Kong off nice. this year. I don't mind hanging around somebody in the arcade because they'll. If, and watching them play if I don't have any money, because when they're done with the machine, you know, often they'll go to another machine and you can watch them and play something different. If you want to really get bored, go to a casino with a bunny, with a bunny, go to a casino with a buddy, a friend, whatever, and make sure you have no money and you watch them all night long, you will get bored fast. It's the, it's the same effect as playing 2600 slot machine for five minutes. Ugh. You will get bored. I never under... People actually bought that game. My dad bought that game. My uncle had, I don't know if it was before it was for him or for my cousins or what, but yeah. Conversely, my dad bought uh, Blackjack for the 2600, the uh, the standalone, not as part of the casino, which came later. And I actually enjoyed the 2600 Blackjack. 
Well, that's, I mean, that's another thing. At least Blackjack, you got some skill. I that's mean, true. Slot machine, it's just random. Yes. It's just random. What's the point? <laughs> yeah, what's the point? <laughs> anyhow. Anyhow. Uh, what more you got? Uh, what more I got? This kind of appealed to me because of my past. There is a new Amiga podcast out now, and it, and it is a... And it's mainly the classic Amigas based on the 68,000 series of processors. They're not talking about the newer ones, the ones you can get now, but the older ones. They talk about the system, what it could do, what its functionality was and everything. And, of course, homebrews and stuff that people are coming up with. Like, I think someone came up with an HDMI connection for a, for an Amiga 1200. So it's called Amigos. You can uh, I'll put uh, their info in the show notes. So shout out to those guys. I uh, heard the first three episodes they did so far, really liking what they do. They talk about uh, one game per episode. And uh, we mentioned this already, but there is now an Atari Jaguar game-by-game podcast. By Shinto. By Shinto, whom I be- I don't know about everybody else, but I was hoping that this guy was going to come up with his own podcast after, he- after hearing his audio submissions with... Uh, with Ferg? The Atari 2600 and 7800 yes. game by game podcasts. Like, why does he not have a podcast? Well, he's got one now. The bad news for me is that I've never, ever, ever had a Jaguar in my life, so I'd be totally lost. But uh, I'll probably listen just to because I, I really like listening to Shinto. What's really cool about what Shinto did? He, you know, he's on his show notes page. He has a link to all the game by game podcasts, you know, including Pie Factory podcast, of course. The page has its own domain too. And, we're, and, of course, we're going to put the info in the show notes. And then of on top of that, show. he has another page dedicated to systems that don't have game-by-game podcasts. It's basically begging people, come on, man. I know. Where, where are you? Let's have a game-by-game. Awesome. Game. And one of he has on there that I've been thinking about doing, but I haven't done it because I just don't know how good it is, seeing as I don't own it anymore, is uh, an Atari ST game-by-game. I can still do it through emulation and all. I used to really be vociferous in the Atari ST uh you know, used, I, w- I was a very vociferous Atari ST user back when. And that's Jimmy G's word of the day, vociferous. Vociferous, yes. I've been thinking about doing it, and uh, I just don't know if I can really spare the time personally, because I had a political podcast, I said this before, and it was weekly, and I gave up because two reasons. I just didn't have the time to keep going with it on a weekly basis with the post-production and all of that. That's why we have Hyde St. Pierre <laughs> post-producting here. Thank God he's back. Man, yeah, Mel DeHohe really screwed up last episode. I'm, I'm telling Man. you. But well, maybe you can enlist him for your ST podcast if you get that off the ground. If I decide to, I'm still thinking about it. I think that's all the news that I have. Either we're getting better with the errata, or we're just not giving a crap anymore. Yeah, I, th- I think what we should do is if we don't have any errata, we should try erotica just to fill up the time. Hmm, bum chicka wow. That's when we'll talk about the uh, those uh, certain games on the Atari 2600. Like the Mystique games. And I think I know when we'll do those. Valentine's Day. There you go. I was originally thinking Mardi Gras, but you could go either way with that since they're so close to each other. Oh, and speaking of Atari 2600, I'm going to have to take over for just a moment here. Um, I do have one more news item, and it's uh, just a little bit further expansion on the news that we've already mentioned uh, several times in this uh, podcast over the past several weeks. And that is uh, the, uh, well, as it is right now, the unnamed contest that we are having. Um, Just a reminder is that you have to contact us. uh, The various methods of contact for us both on our show notes page at flark.it slash piefactory, and they're also in the closing credits of every episode. 
Mm-hmm. But what you need to do is you need to get in touch with us and tell us what you believe the theme that we have chosen for episode 13 is. We've already announced one of the games. Yes, and what game What game was that? Was that Gyrus you were that talking about? That was Gyrus. Gyrus. Okay, so you know that's one of the games. So you need to think of what the theme that we decided was on Gyrus and the other game that we'll announce later. I'm guessing that we're going to have several correct responses on this. So to be honest, we haven't come up with a tiebreaker at this time, but we will be creative with the tiebreaker if there is one. I'd say we just toss the names in a hat. I don't have a hat. I've got several. I've got two hats. Then I will um, give you the names in a hat tossing responsibility. But what is our prize? We have a pretty, pretty cool prize package. We have... An Atari 2600, and I'll give you as many details as I can off the top of my head. It is one of the black Vader 4-Switch models. And not only that, but it is modified so that you can cl- you can connect it to just about any TV through RCA Ooh. ports. You don't need the Switch boxes. And the picture is a lot clearer now that's than sweet. the old-fashioned way. Because my 7800, I don't have any upgrades or anything to it. So this is a pretty sweet prize. That alone is worth entering the contest for. Yeah. It comes with at least one joystick that works. And at least one that doesn't? Possibly. Possibly. It depends (laughs) on how generous we're feeling. It may come with a pair of paddle controllers if people came through for us. And a whole bunch of games, too. And the games are all going to be arcade conversions. The games include, but are not limited to... Donkey Kong, mm-hmm. Zaxxon, mm-hmm. Crystal Castles, yeah. Ms. Pac-Man, mm-hmm. um, what else? I believe Joust and Mario Brothers, so both of our episode eight games, Frogger, mm-hmm. Asteroids, those are all included. We'll have, uh, there'll be uh, actually a lot more than that, but they will be arcade conversions and combat because you cannot get an Atari 2600 without combat. What? You don't want combat? Well, then, hey. Uh, send it to Albert at, at Atari Age and get a little uh, discount on your next order over there. Yes. He takes, uh, takes common cartridges and uh, converts them into homebrews and everything, and he'll give you a little bit of a discount for those kinds of things. So yeah, I think it's cool. a law that when you bid on a uh, when you win a uh, a lot of Atari games on eBay that you you get a minimum of twenty copies of Combat. I th- believe yeah. that's a law. Yeah, absolutely, it, it really is. So yeah, Combat and Pac Man. Yes. Funny story, I went into a, a, a used video game store years back, just looking around through titles, the tar- 2600 I never had that sounded interesting, and there's one that said Tank Plus on it. I'm like, oh, this sounds interesting, I'll buy this one. So I shelled out the two bucks or whatever it was he was charging, get it back, plug it in, it was combat. Not realizing that, <laughs> tank, not realizing that tank Plus is the Sears name for combat. Yep. If you want to get technical, combat was an arcade game. Really? I believe it was one of Atari's early, early titles. One of their early oh. black and white titles. Thinking about it, I think in the arcade it was called Tank Plus. Huh. I have to look that up. See, I'm only recently learning about all these Atari 2600 games that actually were arcade conversions. Like Outlaw, even though I guess I think the real the arcade Outlaw was much more elaborate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Night Driver was. I think Dodgem was. And we may seem, it may seem like we're going off on a tangent here, but we're really not, because what is the theme of today's episode? We're just going to talk about consoles that we've, uh, we've owned in the past. We're just taking a little break from arcade games for a week. Or for two weeks, actually. Well, for an episode, for those of us who want to get literal, since we're all about the literal tonight, 
So, and um, we've obviously both owned the 2600, and we could go on and on and on about it. And if you guys got any sort of memories about consoles that you've owned, 2600, 7800, or anything we've talked about tonight, uh, feel free to email them to us. Uh, contact information is at the end of the episode, or again, you can respond to the uh, Pie Factory podcast page on the AtariAge.com forums, gaming publications, and websites forum. We got a, our own, we got a thread there. You could respond to that as all. We, we the, you could use our WordPress blog feed that actually powers our podcast on iTunes. You know, we could you could respond there. I already, you can respond to us or, through Morse code, uh, semaphore, yeah. smoke signals, uh, Dixie cups with string. And we will take any of those methods. Yeah, we no longer do telex. Unfortunately, the machine broke. And we do still accept punch cards, but you're gonna be a, you're gonna be responsible for the postage. Which what, what model of the twenty six hundred did you own? You obviously owned it. Yeah, the the one that I owned uh, when it was, uh, let's see, um, how can I say this without annoying people? Um, a long time ago in another era, there we go. You can just there. say Ferg. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know, I know. I, I just want to give the poor guy a break. On the I mean, most recent 2600 game by game, he, uh, he took it as a compliment, so I'm going to compliment okay, the right. hell out of him. All right, thanks, Ferg. <laughs> All right, but yeah, in fact, you actually have the system that I had. Uh, yes and no. <laughs> yeah, because remember, I traded you for a bunch of uh, DVDs that had MAME ROMs on them, and I said, this is, my, this is my original Atari, and if you ever want to part with that thing, let me buy it back from you. <gasps> Ooh, you said that. Yes. I totally forgot you said that, because I gave it on to a friend. He ain't a friend of yours anymore. Uh-oh. Uh, John Dixon, if you're listening... Actually, I think I still have the uh, the the twenty six hundred. I just gave him the shell because he was building. Oh, you a, know what? You was... know what? Now that I think about it, technically that wasn't my first. Oh, good. But that the the first I should say the first two that I had were the the four switchers. Mm-hmm. I I did have a, a big sexy or two that I got from eBay auctions many years later. But uh, big sexy is uh, another name for the heavy sixer. Which the heavy sixer was the first model. It weighed a lot because of shielding and thick plastic, and the six come from yeah. the number of switches on the front. Yeah, it's more the plastic than anything else. The shielding was thin as was thin as paper. A lot of people don't realize this that the original Atari twenty six hundred was actually supposed to have built in speakers. And yes. if you look, if you look at the way that the plastic is formed, you can see where there might have. You might think it's for uh, for air ventilation, but that was actually for where they were going to put speakers in. And if you listen to the twenty uh, twenty six hundred game by game podcast hosted by Ferg, uh, a lot of games were programmed in stereo early on because they were supposed to take advantage of that. The twenty six hundred was supposed to be a stereo video game system. That's right. And I believe any six-switch model, be it heavy or light, will have those uh, speaker slots in them. I believe you are correct. Now, And there is one on display at level 257 in Schaumburg. Ooh, in I still have got to get up there. Bring a lot of money. We, we got to work something out for my birthday celebration in September. So we'll make an announcement if I decide to do something about that. But as far as that goes, my very first 2600 console, well, we did own... Before we had a 2600, we did own a Coleco Telegames, which was kind of like Atari's Pong, except under Coleco's name, and it had the I requisite... I think everybody had one of those at some point. Some sort of a clone. We had the clone. We yeah, didn't my, have the actual brother, Atari one. Yeah, my brother had some kind of a Pong, machi- a Pong console. I remember the controllers were just these, like, slide faders. It wasn't even a joystick or a paddle or anything. Yeah. And, and I remember my... 
My parents made him get rid of it for some reason, and I remember seeing it at the Midwest Gaming Classic. I think it was something that Kmart made, believe it or not. I know I took a picture of it, and I can't find it anywhere, but I got it somewhere. For those uh, for those of us, li- our listeners, who can uh, deal with a lot of swearing and a lot of vulgarity, uh, the Angry Video Game Nerd on YouTube actually has an episode dedicated to Pong, to pong consoles. And it's really, really it's really interesting to see what's out there. Nintendo even had a Pong clone. And um, you might want to check that out if you can, like I said, get around the, uh, the swearing and the vulgarity, which it doesn't affect me, but I understand some people are more sensitive or whatever. So, you know. But uh, it's from a historical perspective, he's got quite a few different models on displays, all of them very, very interesting. So can you say link in the show notes? Uh, I can link in the show notes. There you go. And here's the here's the funny thing. Our, my first Atari 2600 console was a heavy sixer, but it was under the Sears Telegames brand. Oh, wow. it wasn't an actual Atari one. And the main difference in that is the the face plate. It goes around the stickers and the the uh, the, the cartridge port uh, on the Atari. I believe it was black with like kind of like an orange, like uh, like a trim, like a yeah, like a border. Uh, this one was actually the whole thing was silver and it said telegames in like green digital type, you know, LCD lettering, and um, that was really the only difference. It was one hundred percent Atari. Otherwise, <laughs> eventually the power supply went out on it. And so we went out and bought a different power supply, a generic off-the-shelf one. But for some reason, this had a thing on it. A thing? Oh, I know what it was for. That if you were to like to trip over the console, it would or the cord, it would break, so you didn't damage your console, you know, physically or awesome. whatever. Well, not quite so much because when one of my friends tripped over the cord and it split at the split part, it was a plug. But he didn't match up the polarity, and he oh. plugged them in wrong. We turned it on, and whoosh, the whole thing wiped out. <laughs> Oh. And so we had to go buy a uh, Vader four switch after that point. Uh, oh, we had man. that console for a while, so we had to run out and get a Vader four switch, and uh, it still worked at that point. But that was a uh, oh man, you want to see somebody somebody's uh, you want to see the joy wiped from somebody's face in a big big hurry? Just I... you know wipe out the uh, the all of the uh, the programming of your home video game console, which is not supposed to actually be wiped out. Yeah, and. I had a not quite as traumatic experience. The four switch that I had, in fact, I shouldn't say I, it was addressed to both me and my brother. And there is, I am so glad that I found it. There is a picture of my of my brother and me right after we opened it. I have the biggest um, bleep-eating grin in my face and everything. It was, it was Christmas 1982. Mm. Within, I'd say, a week, the uh, joystick port, the left joystick port just wore out. Huh. And it wouldn't it wouldn't work properly because you know we were switching for with the paddles back mm-hmm. and forth. That is one thing I don't like about the uh, the twenty six hundred and the seventy eight hundred. In fact, is that the ports are so freaking tight. You have to really jam the controllers in there to to really fit them. So nowadays, I try to use a splitter as much as possible, mm-hmm. so that way I could just you know. That sometimes that doesn't really work well too, though. Sometimes you can really you can uh, it'll uh, especially if you have your paddles. It depends on the game, the programming of the game, but sometimes you can cause conflict. I mean, it won't destroy the game or anything, no, but it'll. No. But really, too, though, you don't even really need a splitter. You just get an extension and just plug your stuff in and out of the extension. That's true. Now you could do that. The, the but you're saying how how tightly things fit into the the jacks on the twenty six hundred seventy eight hundred. That's nothing compared to the Atari ST line of computers. I've talked about this before. 
the uh, joystick port on the STFM models were under the keyboard. There was like a little indentation under the keyboard. Now, you could permanently keep your mouse plugged in there. It's in uh, port one, and then you could plug your joystick in in port zero. And what would happen, let's say like you wanted to play a two-player game. You'd have to unplug the mouse and plug your joystick in, but it was so tight and such a pain in the butt to get those plugged in that eventually the uh, the ports would come loose. And then my, my first Atari ST computer got so bad that I had to fold up a piece of cardboard and wedge it in there just to make sure everything made contact. Eventually, instead of repairing it, I just got a different ST. I got an older model from a friend of ours. This one had the ports on the side, so I didn't have to worry about it anymore. But yeah, that... You know, that's nothing compared to the Atari ST version. We could talk about the ST at another time. It's a fantastic, fantastic, fascinating machine. What uh, what games did you get when you first got your uh, 2600, if you can remember? I Oh, yeah, I remember it very well. Of, of course, Combat, because that was the pack-in. Right. And because I'm, so, in fact, I'm such a big Pac-Man fan that my parents actually got Pac-Man and shoved that in the box, too. <laughs> and the reason that that's what they got was because I wanted the Coleco tabletop Pac-Man. Ah. I thought that, I think I mentioned this in a previous episode, but I thought it was basically an exact replica of the arcade games. I hadn't actually seen it. I just from hearsay, like what I heard, and I misinterpreted what people were saying. Like, oh, it's just like the regular game, you know, because they meant just the outer appearance of it. Yep. There's that video going around of someone with a Raspberry Pi in one of these, like, running... That's what I thought it was like. I thought it was, like, basically an emulated (laughs) version. Nope. No such uh, luck. My parents actually talked to other people who who knew of that thing. They had it for their kids, and they said, oh, it's terrible. The noise is terrible and all that. So they figured that the Atari would be a better investment, and they were absolutely right. They were absolutely right. It was awesome. Uh, so Christmas Day, Pac-Man in combat. My brother and I played the heck out of that, and along with my cousins. Later on that week, Kay's Merchandise Mart. You remember that place? Kay's Merchandise. Oh, um, yes, they were in uh, Kankakee. I think they just closed their last store like ten years ago. Yeah, it was uh, actually Bradley. In fact, in the same shopping center where Hunk's Pancake House was, they were having a sale on Atari games. So my brother and I took money we got for Christmas. We went over there. I don't know why we decided on Street Racer. It might be because we wanted an excuse to use the paddle controllers, and that was the only paddle game they had on sale. I don't remember the reason, but that might be it. So we got that, and we had a choice between Outlaw and Superman for some reason, Mm -hmm. and I said, well, let's get Outlaw. I mean, I don't know what Superman's all about. I never played it. Outlaw, I do know how to play it, so we got that. And the other choice was between Defender and Missile Command. I Mm. wanted Defender because I had played that, and I really loved it. Mm-hmm. And I still love the 2600 version, by the way. But my brother won out, and we got Missile Command instead because it was cheaper. Which is okay, because Missile Command's a great game. That's a great translation on the 2600. And for all of its flaws, Defender on the 2600 is a good version. I mean, it's not it's not the arcade, but, you know, you had to do what you could with the technology they had. You, you know, you have to cut them a little slack. All things considered, I thought it was a very great... A very, very good uh, translation. It had all the basic elements of the arcade, just a couple of maybe a little harder to use than the arcade. Truth be told, I never played the arcade version before I played the 2600 version. I had, and I always was wondering why in the arcade you had an up and down joystick with a reversed button and a thrust button. It just seemed like way too many buttons. Why can't you just have the one four-way joystick, which... Well, you know why they did that? Because they're Williams and they have to make their damn games hard. Damn it. 
They did correct on a sequel to Defender in the arcade called Strike Force, but sadly that game Strike Force A didn't get much distribution, and B, probably because the game sucked. So I was mentioning a moment ago that the main difference between the uh, Atari 2600, well, actually it was called the VCS when they first came out, the video computer system, and the Sears Telegame was the Telegame had that different looking faceplate. There was one other difference. It didn't come with combat. It came with a game called Target Fun, which the Atari name for is Air Sea Battle. Yep. Yes. And in and of itself, it's not a bad game. Now, why did Sears rename everything? Right. Well, they didn't rename everything, but you know, Tank Tank Plus, Target Fun, and the, even the game, even the system was called or the Sears Video Arcade. Yes, it was. And the Intellivision was the Sears Super Video Arcade. Yes, that's right. Yes, it was the Telegames Video Arcade. That's what it was. And then, yes, the Intellivision under the Sears brand, which that was kind of weird that they did that too, was the was the Super Video Arcade. But I grew up without combat, which is kind of an oddity uh, for people that grew up with an Atari console. And the, I, some of the early games that we got, I can't remember what exactly all we got when we got it. I know we had like four or five games, but the earliest games I remember, obviously, Target Fun slash Air Sea Battle. Uh, I already mentioned Blackjack and Slot Machine. Those were two uh, early ones. Uh, I want to think Night Driver was one of them. Night Driver, I thought, was really, really fun. It was. It really worked well with the simplistic graphics that it had, even more simplistic than some of the other games at the time. I'm trying to think. I think there was a fifth one. Uh, I think it was Space Invaders, but it was the Telegames Space Invaders, not the Atari Space Invaders. Yes. If it was an arcade license and Sears released it, they used the arcade name for obvious reason. But if it was if it was something Atari yeah. did, then they would give it their own name. That having been said, um, Sears did get a few exclusive games that were not under the Atari brand. I can only think of two of them. One was Steeplechase, which was horse racing, and another one was Sub Commander. I haven't. I don't think I've played Sub Commander on emulation. I know I've played Steeplechase on emulation, or at the very least watched it on emulation before I turned it off and said, meh. But, so there there was a couple of more, I think. Um, I, I know there was. There's one you haven't said that I that if I heard, I would know it, but uh-huh. I can't think of it. What, there was like a text space one, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah, I know, yeah. A star. Oh, what in the frack was it Wasn't Starship. Wasn't Starship. This is what we call listener feedback bait. Yes. Feed us. Feed us. Feed me, listener. Feed me all night long. Oh, I can't think of the name of it. Um, I think that's all we had for when we originally got it. And, of course, we would save our money and over time buy our own. There was a brand new Toys R Us opened up not too far away from where I lived. I talked about previously about walking across the, uh, the cornfield to the Louis Joliet Mall and going to the arcade there, and they also had a Toys R Us that opened, I think, the year after the mall opened, and uh, I would walk there. I remember one time, <laughs> one time, I had twenty nine ninety nine in my pocket. My mom drove me to Toys R Us just so I could go and buy Missile Command, and I got in there, took the game to the register, put the twenty nine ninety nine out on the counter, and it was like $32. Because of tax. Because of tax. You know, you're like a 10, 12-year-old kid. You don't know what the concept of tax is. You think you look on the shelf, you see that price, and you think you're going to pay that price. The only state that happens in is Delaware, home of tax-free shopping. Um, Or so it says on their welcome to Delaware signs when you're driving into the state. 
No, I have in-laws who live in Maryland. They go to Del- they go to Dover all the time for their shopping. So, yeah, that is true. Dover, Delaware, the city that means well. So, yeah, that was, you go to a store, you got your money for your video game, and you're, then you're, like, disappointed. Of course, my mom drove me over. It's not like I walked across the cornfield to buy it. But so I just went out to the car. My mom gave me the two bucks, and we were all happy. And then I got home and played it and played the heck out of it. The thing I always thought, because I had seen Missile Command in the arcade, I saw the trackball and the three fire buttons. I'm like, wondering how they're going to do it. Won't they have to release a special controller? Because as a kid, you see the different control schemes. You're not thinking like a programmer. You're thinking like a kid who saw something and thinking that's the way it has to be. But they found a way around it, and it worked just fine. And um, hats off to Rob Fulop for that. Rob Fulop, one of my Facebook friends. Uh, He's on Atari Age from time to time. And programmer. And uh, you can find his initials in the game. Just play level 13. Score no points. Get destroyed. Just the first wave. I think it's the rightmost city will turn into his initials. So there's a little Easter egg for you. But Toys R Us, though, man, that was like video game heaven back in the Ferg, you know? Oh, no, without a doubt. And it's like you go in there, it's like, whoa, it's like an entire aisle. 1986 rolls around and I graduate from high school and uh, I get a job at a small electronics company. And then to make a little more money, I got a part time job at Toys R Us, and oh gosh, I got to work in what they called the coop. The way everything's secured now, everything's got like one of those alarm things, and you take it up to a special register, and then you you walk out of there. But when I was working at Toys R Us, they had like this display with just the boxes, and you had a tag, and you had to take it up to a counter, and they gave you the game. I think they still sell like bicycles and swing sets that way, but they had that also for the video games that I got to work in the coop, and I got to see all of the games when they came in. Now, this is obviously 2600 was on the way out, but they still had some games. We still had the 7800. The Nintendo Entertainment System was coming into vogue, and I was just like a kid in a candy store. It didn't hurt that uh, one of the managers there was actually lived a block away from me, and I was her paper boy at the same time as well. Actually, no, I wasn't her paper boy at the time. I was her paper boy a few years earlier. And so she remembered me, and then she pulled strings to get me the job in the coop. Oh, God. I tell you. Oh, kid in a candy store. I'm, I tell you what. And something else I, w- I need to bring up is the kiosks in Kmart. Oh, yeah. Man, that that was awesome. They had these special... It, it's hard to describe. They, they, instead of the regular like CX-40 joystick and paddle, they had the controllers kind of embedded into the panel on the kiosk. It wasn't the usual Atari-style joystick, and the paddle was actually the arcade roller... It was closer to one of those. You could pick a game to play and the start button. They were all, all those buttons were basically like the buttons on the Atari arcade games, the player one, player two start buttons. I want to think that there was a different kiosk for Sears than there was for like other retailers, though. Because I, because the one I remember, I, I remember Sears had a display with their telegames. Uh, but then I also remember that like J.C. Penney's and Toys... Well, no, not Toys R Us. They didn't actually have a kiosk at Toys R Us, which was weird. But uh, like uh, Kmart and uh, Service Merchandise and Venture and what whatever other stores were the, way back when uh, had a kiosk. And it had a list of games and a little LCD display. You, you looked at the list and saw what game you wanted to play. Oh, Asteroids number one. So you'd go boop, boop, you know, you push the button to select zero one on there. You hit the start button. It would come up to Asteroids. You got to play for like 30 seconds to a minute before it reset. Oh, I hated that. Yeah. And I think Coleco had a similar setup when they came out with the Coleco Vision. 
Uh, I know Imagic had their own setup to display their games. I don't remember if the Imagic one let you play them or if it was just a display. I have to double check. And I want to think that uh, there was another store inside the Louis Joliet Mall called Video Concepts. You remember that place? No. Or no, that would have you wouldn't have been in Joliet at Not the time. Not yet, no. Uh, it was like they had sold like TVs and stuff like that, but um, they also sold video games and Atari home computers. That was the only place I really saw that really had the, well, I think Toys R Us may have as well, but they had like the full line of Atari computers, and um, which was only the 8-bits uh, back in the Ferg. <laughs> and uh, uh, he's going to kill us. <laughs> I thought he took it as a compliment. Oh, yeah, he did. But he's going to be killing us with kindness, I guess. Aww. And um, and I think they also had the 2600 kiosk as well. But I think there was a difference with the Sears one. I'll have to look it up on Google. And the other thing I remember about Sears, back then, the Sears store, all of the department stores had their own cafeterias in there. But yeah. Sears actually also had a little candy counter yes. where they sold popcorn and stuff. And the Atari kiosk was always within sniffing oh, distance man. with where they were doing the roasted peanuts and the popcorn. It was literally kid in a candy store when you played at Sears. That was always fun. You would always, if you didn't have money to go to the arcade, you would always go to Sears. The Sears in Meadowview Shopping Center in Kankakee actually had an arcade for a while. You know what? The Sears at the Louis Joliet Mall had a small one. It was, yeah. it was the size of a, of a walk-in closet, maybe a little bit larger. They had three machines, and I don't think I ever played any game in there, because. but I think I always walked by it. And one machine I remember they had was Super Cold. And, oh, you know what? They had Space Invaders, too. I think I did play the Space Invaders. Yeah, the one at Meadowview had a lot more games than that, but it was just basically like one aisle with games on either side. And I remember the Robotron was was uh, set Ooh. to free play for some reason. So I was like, whoa. And I remember at one point my mother told me, oh, you know what? That arcade closed down. There was a sign outside of it that said some kid got brain damage from playing it. So they had to close <laughs> the arcade <laughs> down. She lied through her teeth because I went there months later and it was still there. The lies parents would tell us to keep us off of video games. Yeah, but man, we're really going off on a tangent now, are we? Well, why not? This is a tangent episode for the most part. It's a tangent episode, but man, we only covered one system that we've had so far. We're already like an hour in. Yeah, well, there was 30 minutes of Adenda and Irata. Yeah, and and I'm sure Hyde's going to be busy yeah, too. Yeah, Hyde does a good job despite his demands. Here's a good question for you. What was the very last game, not that you bought, but the very last Atari game you saw in a store? And where did you see it? I can answer this question. Um, I believe it was Junior Pac-Man, and I saw it in 1987 at uh, KB Toys, I think. And I asked for it for Christmas that year, and I got it, too, along with Crystal Castles. Mine, I don't remember the year, but it was Service Merchandise in Crest Hill, Illinois, they had moved from the Crest Hill Shopping Center to Northridge Plaza. They had been there for a couple of years, and it was the only Atari game they had in stock, and it was off the wall. It was a red box title. Well, Junior Pac-Man was too, actually. Yeah. And I remember that. I was thinking about getting it, but then I looked on the back, and it was like another Breakout clone, and as much as I loved Super Breakout, it just didn't appeal to me playing Breakout with a joystick. And so I passed on it, and I've played it on emulation, and it's an okay game, but I don't regret having passed it up. And that was the very last game I saw. Over the years, everybody had an Atari collected hundreds of games. I mean, maybe not everybody, but there's nobody that had just maybe 10 Atari 2600 games. Yeah, I think I had close to 20, like, during the peak of 
the Atari. We days. probably had thirty or forty, maybe forty, uh, because a lot more now. Well, I give a lot more now. It helps that you can get them for really cheap now, and now that you know, I I work full time. You know, the most <laughs> amazing thing about the Atari Twenty Six Hundred uh, to me was is that when you were a kid, there were so many titles to choose from. You didn't get them all, and then you looked late. You yeah. grew up and got older, and you looked at them. At the catalog, you saw all of these games that just looked kind of weird. But then you played them in emulation, and then you're like, wow, I got to own this. And then before you know it, you got them. Skydiver and Human Cannonball are two of my favorite games. Really? Oh, I especially love Human Cannonball, because if you miss the uh, the water tank that you're supposed to shoot your guy into, he'll like bounce. He, he'll either overshoot the, the water tank and just fly off the screen, or if you aim too low, he'll bounce off the side and hit the ground and uh, i think he i think uh, when he hits the i don't remember if it's this one or skydiver if he hits the ground his body will crumple into a heap and then it'll be replaced with the word splat <laughs> <laughs> i don't remember the word splat that might it could have been skydiver yeah that's probably what it was yeah it was probably skydiver one thing i remember about human cannonballs if you had your guy land just at the corner of the water tower and he you know pop out with his little hands uh-huh. in the air. He'd kind of like teeter back and forth on the corner. Oh, nice. Yeah. Those games were simple. They were, they looked so stupid, but they yeah. were fun. Uh, they were just, they they, really those were. were really fun. They're just fun, simple games. I mean, they wouldn't even be considered a mini game on a phone these days. Those were fun, fun games. Those two in particular, then there was, they, they, they tried like, I've never played Skydiver. You have to check it out. It's uh, you need to read up the yeah. manual a little bit to just to uh, to figure out how to do it. But that's a fun game. I I kind of like that one. It's not as fun as Human Cannonball, but it is fun. And then you got like the edutainment type games that they did. The three of them I can think of for the twenty six hundred were um, Hangman, Basic Programming, and Basic Math. Basic Math. Oh, good. Well, I'm gonna start with Hangman first though. <laughs> Hangman was fun. I mean, it was Hangman, but it was I still got an immense amount of fun out of it, just guessing the words. I didn't have it, but we borrowed it from my cousin several times. When you moved your joystick up and down to sel- or up or down to select the letter, it would do the uh, the ABC song. Go really. As you selected the letters, that was so awesome, and so that one was kind of fun. But then there was basic programming, which you had to get a special keypad controller. We had to get two. Well, the, the box came with two of them, and then they had overlays, and it was just a, a huge cluster trying to get to do anything with it because you only had a total of, let me think here, 9, 12, 24 keys, and there's 26 letters in the alphabet, plus there's a bunch of functions that you have to do. You had There was a big button on the bottom that you used as a shift. You had to shift between four different sets Ugh. on each of the keys. It was just it was just horrible. And then you could only program four lines of any program. You couldn't do anything with it. And then... You couldn't save it either, you could it, you? You couldn't save it. Once you turned it off, it was gone. Man. I mean, it, was, it was pointless. I mean, I, I remember buying that at KB Toys with the keypad controllers. At the end of the video game crash. <laughs> so it probably it cost like you, what, four bucks? bucks? Yeah. It was something like, I think it spent a total of like maybe 15 bucks on the controller in the game. I've never had the keypad controllers, but from what I hear, it's basically the same controller that comes with Star Raiders. For the most part. The only difference is that the uh, the way that the buttons are. The buttons on the um, 
the keypad controller are actually like little buttons, like the little buttons on your shirt, whereas the keypad controller are like little soft, mushy things. Right. Oh, and, and we got we got to talk about basic math. <laughs> that oh, that was one of the early games my my parents have got because I was horrible at math in school. Oh, Jim will play this. Play. It's math. There's no game. Yeah. You're solving problems. There is no game. Now, this is something we need to put in the show notes. I'm sure a lot of our listeners have seen this millions of times, but there is a blog that has Atari 2600 box and manual art, but uh-huh. instead of the names of the games, it has titles based on the actual oh, art. That yes. is freaking hysterical. And <laughs> yes. I think oh, I think we, it was ba- it was either Basic Math or Math Grand Prix, which the title was called Obligatory Educational Game with game in, a, in quotation marks. <laughs> yes. I know exactly the site you're talking about, and a few of those we can't read on air if we want to maintain PG-13. Yeah. But, <laughs> man, it is hysterical. <laughs> Yeah, there are a few of them. Man, I just <laughs> okay, fell Hyde, off. Okay, Hyde, get ready to bleep. Get ready to bleep. Here we go. <laughs> one of them was called... One, <laughs> one of them was called... It's, it's f***ing checkers. checkers. And the subtitles, like, where they where it lists the game variations. Checkers. You really want this? It's checkers. Seriously. <laughs> seriously. Play something else or something like that. <laughs> and there was not one but two checkers games on the 2600. <laughs> there was the Atari one, and then there the was the Activision, Activision one, and they're both checkers. <laughs> and, oh, what's the other one that I like? Oh, yes. Um, Every sport, like Video Olympics, it's called, they retitle it Every Sport Ever in Pong Form. Pong Form. Oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, you know, we're talking about, we, we, we were talking about basic math when we brought this up. Uh, we, we talk about prototypes that may, have not, may or may have not been discovered for the 2600. They actually found a prototype for the uh, quote-unquote board game or whatever one you want to call it, Boggle. Really? For the 2600. Where you do shake the console? <laughs> you press the button, and I, I don't remember how it works, and it just displays the boggle thing, and you got to write down the words you find on the paper, and then you look them up in your dictionary. <laughs> well, to me, that's the equivalent of the, of the uh, I think this, this came out in 1989 for home computers such as the Amiga. Trivial Pursuit, a game that's yep. basically based on the honor system. It asks you the question, then after time runs out, it says, did you get it right? I could do you one more. Uh, there was um, a game for the Nintendo Entertainment System. It was an early launch title. It was called Stack Up. And it used the Rob the Robot, and you had to pick up the blocks and stack them into a pattern that you showed on the screen. And then after you stacked them up, you pushed a button, and it, uh, there was a message on the screen. Did you stack them up correctly? Yes or no? <laughs> Look once we mentioned I'm going to mention the angry video game nerd again. Look up his episode uh about uh Rob the Robot. Okay. <laughs> once again, it's not for people that have dainty ears. <laughs> I, I'm sure I'm sure most people most people will uh I'm sure most people will enjoy it. But I'm just warning you out there. It's NSFW in a big big way. <laughs> well, unless you work in places where I've worked, including my current job. Oh man. <laughs> You know what? We were going to do, originally going to do a thing about all the consoles that we've ever owned, but we're just going on and on about the Atari 2600, yeah. and quite frankly, I'm having a good yeah, time Yeah, me with too, this. man. Me too. Oh, man. There's so many memories with this thing. I mean, I, all in all, I think we all have more memories of this console than we do all of the others. Um, 
and I can't, there are no exceptions in my case. Not even the uh, Coleco Telstar, which I brought up earlier, yeah. which just had the pong, I'm sorry, tennis, hockey, and handball. Well, something that I, I, I would like to kind of sneak in here is I would say for me, it's the 7800, which I didn't even own until 2006. It is uh-huh. my favorite console. Because the 7800 had some really awesome games specifically for it. You know, we talked before about Asteroids for the 7800, how I love that. Food Fight, to me, that is the 7800's killer app, Food Fight. Oh, without a doubt. That is easily yeah, the killer food app. Food Fight, that Ball Blazer, and any of the homebrews that you can get from uh, the folks on Atari Age. Any of those are freaking amazing. Hey, you know what? As long as you, uh, you brought up uh, killer app... Uh, what would you say was the killer app that you've seen so far on the uh, the Atari 2600? Yars Revenge. Okay, that I think is a good good answer. With me, it with me, Yars Revenge would probably be my number two or number three game. After a lot of soul searching, would have to say that my killer app for the 2600 was Adventure. That okay, you know what? I can totally see. Okay, and let me ask you, why was that game so awesome? You were a square. Moving around with a little know. pointy thing and looking to not get eaten by seahorses. And with a bridge that consisted of two pieces of brackets. They're brackets the, to the right of the P on your keyboard. Why was it awesome? You know what it was? It was imagination. That, yeah. It was imagination. It had randomness and it had a hidden feature in there. The first game with an Easter egg, and I never knew about that until I knew you. Now, some people say that there actually was one earlier Easter egg, and that was on the Bally Astro. Was was it? It was either the Astrocade or the Fairchild Channel F console. Uh, this was the with the adventure one was easily the first well-known Easter egg. And that added another dimension to the game. Uh, you know what? We can't talk 2600 without talking about the Easter eggs. I already brought up the one in Missile Command. There's this one. Before we go on to that, I think I, I want to change. Yeah, I would have to say, I have to agree. Yes, Adventure is the killer app for the 2600. It's, it's an earlier title than, than Yars Revenge, so it's, so it's a little bit more definitive. And also, I mean, it's not really my favorite. Yars Revenge isn't my favorite game on the 2600 either. I love both games. Don't get me wrong. You got to go with what game you keep going yeah. back to. And every time I play my 2600, I've got a, I've got maybe a couple of hundred games for my 2600. And, and I'll play different set of games every time, with the exception of Adventure. I always pop Adventure yeah. in, no matter what other games I'm playing. I mean, seriously, I mean, neither are my favorite games, but they are awesome games. And my congratulations goes out to Warren Robinette and Howard Scott Warshoff, because they really did a bang-up job on both of those games. But yeah, Adventure oh, has indeed. to be the killer app. And I think the one thing that kind of pushed it over for me, probably about five years ago, uh, when uh, I was driving down uh, Western Avenue in the north side of Chicago... At a red light, I noticed the car in front of me had a decal of Yorkle the Dragon from Adventure. Nice. And I commented in an Atari age, and I said I, w- I would have loved to have gotten a, a picture of it, but the light turned green, and you know we had to move, in the, and you know the, the car was moving too fast, and someone said, oh, did you have the yellow key with you? <laughs> yeah, because if you put the difficulty switch in A, Yorkle was afraid of the yellow key. I think that the, the, the two difficulty switches did something different. One made them more aggressive, because uh, if your dot, your dot was uh, next to a dragon uh, and you're about to get eaten, there would be a pause before he swallowed you. But if the other switch was in the A position, there would be no pause. He would just immediately swallow you. There were three selections on that game. One of them was a smaller kingdom, but everything was in a 
a specific place all the time. The yellow key was right next to the yellow castle when you started. Right there, that told you that in the other variations, you see the yellow key, it opens the yellow castle. So you see a white castle later on, you order some hamburgers. Or you take the white key and you open it up. See what I did there? Uh, you get the uh, the black key, it opens up the black castle, which is not a place where I would want to order hamburgers. And that would be kind of... Uh, the selection one, like I said, everything is a set location, but it was kind of a bit of a tutorial. Now, once you got into game two, it introduced a larger kingdom. You had places called the catacombs where you could only see the, uh, the pa you couldn't see the maze with the exception of like a little two inch area around your, around your dot, around your square. And uh, so you had to figure out that maze. There were a bunch more screens other than that. that and actually in Selection 2 is where the White Castle was introduced. And um, you had to get the bridge to go in there to get the Black Key to open up the Black Castle. It was a larger kingdom, but still things were in the same place. I believe it also had a thing called the Bat, which is the one thing in the game you want to kill, yes. but you can't. Oh, I hate that thing. <laughs> you can trap him in a castle, though. Yeah, you can. Once you unlock a castle, you can still lock it back up. The way to do it is you open the castle. Best to take him into, like, the white castle would be the easiest one to do it. Open up the white castle, drop the key, find the bat, grab him, put him in the white castle, then grab the key and lock the door on your way out, and he doesn't bother you the rest of the game. I generally don't bother with that because, I don't know, I just don't want to bother with it. But uh, the thing with the bat, and the reason why we're talking about how much we hate the bat in this game is because he will take whatever you're holding. Sometimes he won't be carrying anything. He'll just grab what you're, you're carrying and just fly away with it. Other times he'll be carrying something and he'll swap it out with you. He can also carry the dragons. Yes. Live dragons. And there's been many a time where he's brought a live dragon and the dragon ate me. And then he would pick the dragon up and fly me throughout the whole game. <laughs> yeah. See, that freak that freaks me out. That it really was does. Because it's just weird. Something I actually would do, and I still do when I play the game every now and then, I actually, if I see the bat, I just grab the bat. Because the bat's just going to grab whatever it, whatever it comes across. That's not a bad strategy. One other thing about the game is sometimes you'll kill a dragon, but he'll be in your way. You can't get around him because he's blocking your path. You cannot move through a dragon unless he's blinking. And the way to do that is to bring two more other objects into the screen. So if you see the bat, he's carrying something. You just grab the bat and you can go right through him. There's no way that's not a bug. That, no, that's because of the, uh, the some of the limitations of the 2600 processing. Exactly. Although that blinking did help activate the Easter egg too, though. That's right. Now, why don't you, uh, why don't you uh, tell our lovely listeners what the Easter egg is? A lot of them probably know, but some of them don't. Okay. You can get this in either Variation 2 or 3. Uh, before I go on more about it, uh, Variation 3 is the same as Variation 2 with this, as far as the size of the kingdom goes. The only difference is that everything is randomly placed. You could actually have a game where the black key is inside the black castle and oh, make yeah. the game unsolvable. It's not like Impossible Mission for the Atari 7800 where you can be going, playing the game for hours and then realize, oh, the game's got a bug, you can't solve it. This, you just hit reset, you're, you can play the game again and be done with it in another five minutes. I've always had much more success with Game 3 than I've had with Game 2. You know what? I have too, actually. The randomness makes it fun, and I, the two things that make adventure fun are the randomness with Game 3 and, once again, using your imagination. Now, I need to say something that's kind of controversial. 
Go for it. Then we'll talk about the Easter egg. Yeah, this this hit me when I was uh, participating in the Atari Age High Score Club, 2600 High Score Club, earlier this year, when E.T. was the game. I was playing E.T. I never really played E.T. I never had, I didn't have it back in the Ferg. I didn't have it until I started collecting again, like, in the last 10 years or so. So, I it was the first time I really sat down and played it, and I read the manual and everything, and I was thinking, this is basically a little bit more graphical version of Adventure. Yeah, I could see that, yeah. Because you still have to gather certain things, put them in a certain place. There's the random level, where everything's random, just like Adventure Variation 3. And E.T. has several Easter eggs, too. Not just one, it's got a couple. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which I, I didn't bother trying to trigger, because the ge- seriously, E.T. is a hard game, so I was like, I just want to win one game It's not a bad game, game it's it. hard. No, it's not bad by any means. But going means. back to Adventure, the Easter egg. Yes. How to trigger it. It's pretty much common knowledge for anyone that's owned the game, but consider this a gift from me to you, as if the podcast wasn't enough of a gift. You listeners owe me. So, <laughs> what you need to do is you need to find the bridge. There's It's a blue item, and it looks like, as Sean said earlier, like the two square brackets on your keyboard right, right near the enter key. Find that, and then you open up the black castle, you bring the bridge in, and there's a place where there's a little tiny room. You're going to have to look for it. Uh, you go up two screens once you're into the labyrinth in the Black Castle, and then right t- one, I believe. Well, you go up one, right one, down one. It's weird. But this room will be on like the lower left quadrant of, the, the, of one of the screens. It's kind of hard to tell. But you need the bridge to get into this room. You can tell you're in the correct room because when you bring the bridge in, everything in the room blinks. And if you might see nothing else in that room, you bring the bridge in, everything will blink badly. So, you take the bridge, you put it over the wall so that you can get into this room. You press down into the lower right corner and you'll hear the picking up sound. And then you take that out of the black castle all the way down to the main corridor. Go all the way to the right. There'll be a black line going across the very easternmost edge of the main corridor. Drop the dot there. Then grab two objects. Doesn't matter what it is. It could be a dead dragon. It could be a key. It could be the sword. It could even be the bat, but be careful with that because if he flies away, you're stuck in the secret room. At that point, you can go through that black line wall. In the next room, it will say created by Warren Robinette. And I've got to complain about something, not about adventure, but one of the very first plug-and-play consoles or plug-and-play devices I've ever seen was it was an Atari 2600 joystick-looking deal, and there were 10 games built into it. One of the games on there was Adventure, and it played pretty good, and it even had the Easter egg in it. Awesome. Not so much. Oh? When you got into the room, what did it say? Text. T-E-X-T. That's what it said. The word text. Are you kidding me? Not kidding. Oh. It literally had the word text. What might be helpful to uh, listeners who don't know about this is, why was that Easter egg there? And this reason is why you saw many other video game companies like Imagic and Activision and all of these come to prominence. It's because Atari did not let the programmers have royalties, let alone their names in the game uh, to acknowledge the programmers. And Warren Robinette got ticked off about that. 
and he hid his name in the game. And when it was finally found out, it's too late for Atari to do anything. And I, I remember the story goes, a kid wrote into Atari. He's like, what's this room that says created by Warren Ed about? And nobody at Atari knew about it. And hundreds <laughs> of thousands of adventure cartridges had already been purchased. You can't recall That's them. That's awesome. And then what happened was, later cartridges, Atari actually had an, an official like logbook for scores. And they had certain things that you had to do to get certain achievements, if you will. I mean, you didn't get patches or anything like Activision, but, you know, you got bragging rights. And eventually in the in the scorebook, it said, beat adventure uh, on game three, both difficulty switches in a, a mode, and enter the secret room. Oh. <laughs> I kid you not. That's I don't awesome. have that anymore, but th- it became an official part of Atari. Wow. They didn't recall them, but they turned lemons into lemonade. That's awesome. Or as they say, when life gives you lemons, hey, free lemons. Or find somebody with vodka. Ooh, even better. Yes. But... Oh, man. You know what? I could talk on forever about Adventure. Adventure is one of the simplest games. It really is. There is so much depth to it. You could easily do a two or three hour podcast about this one game. Didn't Ferg do that once already? I don't remember how long the game was. He's done Adventure, and it was a really good. The longest episode he did was on Pitfall. Pitfall. That was a great one, too. That was a good episode. Pitfall, not my favorite game. Oh, it's one of mine. I like it, but the reason I don't go back to it is it just didn't seem that deep a game to me. It just seemed shallow because you were just gathering treasures and it's touted as an adventure game, but all you were doing was picking up treasures and gaining points. An adventure game to me is something like Adventure or Raiders of the Lost Ark or even E.T. because there's a set goal and if you're adventuring something, you have a quest. Pitfall didn't really have a quest. It's a quest. It's a quest for fun. I'm going to have fun and you're going to have fun. We're all going to have so much fun fun will need plastic surgery to remove our god smiles you'll be whistling symphony doodah out of your pitfall too on the other hand actually had an objective and i liked pitfall 2 a lot more than pitfall uh pitfall 2 had better music and graphics but it it doesn't hurt that they actually had their own special chip in there which sadly the only game ever used it was pitfall 2 i had heard rumors that there were plans to use it in other games and um I liked it much more, and Pitfall 2 was based on the Saturday Supercade um, cartoon of Pitfall. Oh, loosely. People say that the cartoon was based on Pitfall 2. The other way around, Pitfall 2 was based on the cartoon. Man, you know, I'm one of the only people in the world who does not like Pitfall 2. I like Pitfall. Pitfall 2, I just just don't like it. Pitfall 2 is hard. Well, the number one reason for me, the music. I get so tired of it. It's just, I mean, You can always turn the volume down. I can, which is what I did last time I played it. But then, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's hard, but it just seems impossibly hard. I got a perfect score on it once. All right, people complain about the pits in E.T. Man, I think it's a lot worse in Pitfall 2. <laughs> seems like I'm falling down everywhere. Once you get the timing right on that... It's easy enough. The one problem with Pitfall 2, and I'll grant this is a problem, is is that sometimes the things that you got to pick up, the treasures aren't necessarily in a place where it's going to be easy to figure out how to get there. There were a lot of little things about Pitfall 2 that I loved, like uh, you could grab onto the balloon and it would play the I can't remember the name of the song. You know the It's called When You're In Love, It's the Loveliest Night of the Year. Ah, there we are. And 
They made jumping over uh, the scorpions a little easier, although they didn't have that many to jump over in this one. The thing that really sucked enemy-wise about Pitfall 2 were the condors. Uh, the bats would go up and down, but it was easier. The uh, The condors would go up and down, but they had like a longer arc, and you really had to time it because their wings flapped, and it made the spot you had to go under smaller, and you really had to time that. Uh, to this day, I can't believe I got a perfect score on it. I can't. I think the condors kill me all the time. All right, there's, there's, okay, there's one thing about the music I do like, and it is kind of, and it's very clever how... You know, like say you don't really lose a life in Pitfall Two. Instead, you just you know have a minor inconvenience, I guess, and you're sent back to your previous checkpoint. And when that happens, the incessant makes you want to kill people because you get so sick of it. Music switches mm-hmm. to a minor key while Pitfall Harry is floating back to the checkpoint, and then it goes back to the major key. That is pretty clever. It does, goes back to the major key, but then after a while, without you having picked something up or getting killed. Well, getting touched by an enemy, it'll go back down to a minor key. Mi- minor key? Well, I mean, the tempo slows at the very least. It slows until yeah. you pick up a treasure or get, you know, touched by an enemy. Um, so they did some really good, clever tricks with that. I mean, and I can understand where you're coming from on the music. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, it it can get grating, but uh, later on. I would actually time my going under the condors with the music because the music, it's not just the dude. It also had the, it, you also had the, the percussion where it go. Yeah. And I would use that to time getting under the condors. That is that a good point. Sort yeah. of, but that was a great game. The, the 2600 really had some clever adventure games and you got to give it credit uh, for that. But we probably should start wrapping this up, but yeah. we've only talked about the 2600. But, uh, you know, as I said, you could easily go uh, Just a, a brief time. shout out to the 7800, man. And on my list of stuff to talk about, I had 2600, Vectrek, 7800, 5200, Intellivision, Sega Genesis, and Sneeze. I guess we're not going to get to every one of those. No, uh, but we could save this link, <laughs> this by our lists for a later time. Oh yeah. And yeah. Um, one last thing, the twenty six hundred got really kind of poor marks for its arcade translations. They would port an arcade game very popular to the twenty six hundred. Yes. We all know about Pac Man not being quite the arcade. The early ones were really not quite the arcade. Space Invaders in the was the first game licensed from the arcade for a home console. Uh, and it didn't. It played exactly the same, but the aliens didn't look the same. They didn't look the same, but who the hell cares? I mean, there was still the aliens. You're blowing know? them up, you know. Uh, but it, we didn't care it, because it was great, fun. You know? it's, and it's a great conversion, even though it's not exist. It is. And, and there are homebrews that do make the aliens arcade perfect. Yeah, but I like the original. <laughs> the oh, original yeah. had a boatload of variations. It was you, like, you, what, 112, I think? 114, I, th- I believe it was. You'd have invisible invaders uh, where the, uh, the your protective shields would move. Oh, what else was there? Uh, two people lot. at the same time. Yeah, yeah. And uh, there was the the uh, the very well-known frying technique to get double shots. Frying, by the way, means quickly turning the power switch on the 2600 on and off real quick to produce weird effects. Uh, you, actually, the uh, the frying one wasn't so much frying as it was just a it was a trick because this wasn't technically frying. On Space Invaders, you would only get normally one shot on the screen at a time. You can cheat and get two shots on the screen at the same time, and I'll tell you how. This is another gift from me to you. You hold the reset button down on the 2600 while it's turned off, and then turn it on. Let off the reset button, the game automatically starts. Two shots on the screen at the same time makes the game a lot easier. Yeah, you can also do that by the frying technique. 
Yes, but it's a lot, probably a lot safer doing it this other way. Yeah, it, it is definitely safer. But what I wanted to ask you, yes, uh, given us how we're talking about arcade translations on the 2600, what is your favorite 2600 arcade translation? Junior Pac-Man. Oh, actually, you know what? Original era, I would say Junior Pac-Man because it was amazing. I mean, it, it had the scrolling maze, except that it went up and down instead of left and right. They had that feature in. The gameplay mm-hmm. was challenging enough. Were the mazes the same, just in the opposite I don't believe they were the same, but it was close enough. It was close okay. enough. I was wondering about that. By the way, a fun fact for you, the original Atari Pac-Man, in a way, it's to a slight extent, it's the arcade maze, but turned 90 degrees, which is why the ghosts come out of the side instead of the top, and why the uh, the tunnels are on top and bottom instead of the sides. I can almost almost see that. Almost. It's not exactly the same because oh, it no. is symmetrical because of programming techniques. But it, I can see where you would say that. But yeah, Junior Pac-Man, you know, I got that. I told you I got that for Christmas and I loved that thing. And later on, Hard my mother said, Pac-Man. so what do you think? What do you think of that Junior Pac-Man? I got you. I said, seriously, this is one of the best games that you can get for Atari. And she said the guy at the store said the same thing. But overall, I would say, hands down, the best arcade conversion I have seen for the 2600 has to be mm-hmm. what you, you can I think you can still get this in the Atari Age store, the homebrew version of Ladybug. Holy cow, that is amazing. Now, that's a later title, and if you're going to go all time of everything... Uh, yeah, I would say definitely Ladybug. But if we're just talking classic eras from when we first got it, which is kind of where I'm going with on this, I would say for me, Tapper. Tapper's very good. It is. And it's amazing they put Sega took such a complex arcade game and got 90% of the features in the cartridge. And the graphics are excellent. Very good. A little shout out to the... Uh, blatant uh, Mountain Dew product placement. Yep. And because uh, <laughs> the uh, there were we're going to we'll talk about Tapper at a later date because there's a lot of interesting stuff about that game. But I would say that was the best one overall. If we're just going to go with games made by Atari, then yes, Junior Pac-Man. I would say their conversion of Stargate's up there. I don't think it's Ugh. as fun as the arcade game. It has all the features and it looks exactly like the arcade and it plays like it, but I would say that there's just something a little bit better about the arcade game that makes it more fun. Controversy for me, I hate the 2600 Stargate. Quite simply because it is a beast and a half to control because you have to balance two controllers and try to keep straight what each one does. It's a pain. I, I keep bringing up uh, on the Atari 2600 forums on Atari Age that a home brewer needs to make it to where you could use the di- uh, video touchpad yes. controller that came with Star Raiders to work with uh, Stargate. That would make it perfect. You could do that with so many games. I honestly don't even use the second joystick on Stargate. I just play it with the first one. I don't even use this heart, smart bombs, hyperspace, and none of that stuff. Just play it like it's Defender, really. <laughs> oh, by the way, if you have Stargate for the 2600, what is it most likely called? Defender 2. Defender 2. Yeah, that's what mine is. Mine is Defender 2. Mine is actually called Stargate. Oh, lucky and you. And it's a, I believe mine is a silver label. Yeah, what is mine? Mine is the red label, It's uh, or the red box variation, at least. Yes. And, you know, for all of the good trans arcade translations that they have on the 2600, there was obviously a lot of stinkers. I would say, probably in my opinion, the worst arcade translation on the 2600 would be Donkey Kong Jr., which is an arcade game we're going to be talking about in episode 13, by yeah. the way. Ding, 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 ding. Remember this. 
But I still had some fun with it, and I actually digital press credits me with finding a bug on the 2600 uh, Donkey Kong Jr. that could, uh, if you do it right, can get you infinite lives. I haven't been able to recreate it in emulation, but... Huh. Uh, you can listen to episode one. There's also a link in the show notes to that exact bug. Yes. So, once again, we have told you guys the two games we're going to be talking about in episode 13. Remember them, and then it's up to you to guess the theme. Yes. Now, when episode 13 rolls around and we're done with the show, we are not going to announce the theme. This will give people that are listening to us in various formats a little extra time to uh, to enter the uh, enter the contest. Yeah, we had said August 18th before was the deadline, but we're going to extend that, actually. It's going to be after August 18th. Yes. Yeah, because it's because we're on, I mean, you can get us on Stitcher and all that, but we're also on a local network here in the southwestern Chicago suburban area, and we want to give them a little time to join the contest as well. Uh, that's Tuiville at T-O-U-H-Y-V-A-L-L-E.com. We're there every Sunday at noon. You can listen to the Pie Factory there. And you can uh, get a direct links to that in the episode six show notes. So it's just to give them a little time too. We will not announce the theme on episode 13. After we've talked about both games, then what's going to happen is episode 14. We will announce episode 13's theme, and we will announce the winner. That's how it's going down. And it's a pretty good prize package. And uh, in event of a tie, which I think we will, we'll just draw out of a hat. I will let somebody choose the hat that I'm going to draw it out of. I've got a couple of hats. I have more than two hats. So there it is. If you want to find out what the games are, and you just fast-forwarded to the end, Tough noobers, you're going to have to listen to the whole episode. I ain't telling you what the two games were right now. <laughs> or you can just listen to the next episode. So you're not going to just get away with fast forwarding. That's <laughs> right. Homie, don't play that. At any rate, I think we should yeah, uh, close, close up, up shop. So that was at this 26, Atari 2600 episode of Pie Factory. And I think this is a good idea. We'll, you know what we should do? Next time we want to do a change of pace episode, as it were. Get we'll, drunk. We'll talk about the 5200. We'll get drunk. There's that, too. We'll talk about the 5200 or another console, or maybe something a little bit later down the line. Yeah. This was a fun episode. This is one of my favorites. I, I really enjoyed this one. Yeah. If you want to hear more about the Atari 2600 and go in a little more in-depth into the different games, listen to the Atari 2600 Game by Game podcast, hoping, hoped, hoping, hosted by our friend Ferg, and uh, you'll have a good time with that show. That's an excellent show. And... Um, he actually inspired us to do this show because he normally does 2,600 games, and he did a one-off about arcade games. Since we do arcade games, we decided we'd do a one-off about consoles, and it turns out it's just a 2,600 show. Ferg in reverse. Ferg in reverse would be Gurf. Gref. Kind of like Gorf. Ooh. Ooh, 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 ooh. we need a homebrew. We need, we, we need to hack the 2,600 version of Gorf and call it Gref. Gref. Ferg. F-E-R-G-G-R-E-F. Gref. And it'll be all centered, all themed on the 2600 Game by Game podcast. Booyah, million oh, dollar man. idea that'll probably net me a quarter. A quarter, not yep. a quarter of a million. So it's time to close up shop. So thank you for listening, everybody. I hope to see you all again for episode 13. Once again, this is Jimmy G. And I forgot my name. What is my name again? Mr. Amnesia. Mr. Amnesia, yes. Ooh, I think you should stick with that. So we'll Mr. Amnesia. See you guys in two weeks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This episode of the Pie Factory podcast was edited and produced by Hyde St. Pierre. Opening and closing theme is The Happy L, composed by Sean Courtney. Jim and Sean can be contacted on Facebook via the Pie Factory podcast page 
over email at piefactory at fab4it.com or over Twitter at piefactorypfp. Visit the Pie Factory podcast on the web via Flark at flark.it slash piefactory. How do you go to a Crash Test Dummies concert and yell for their biggest hit if they haven't played it yet? <laughs> Play, man! All right, we're just scraping the bottle of the barrel here. Scraping the bottle? Hey, pass it over, man. <laughs> Is that Freedom Rock, man? Turn it up. Yeah, we already did that one yet. Oh, yeah, already. we did. But yeah, you can never it. have too much Freedom Rock. Of course not. Of course not. There's something I do every now and then. It's called 8.5 Miles with Jim. It's a it's a thing I do on my uh, YouTube page. I've been doing it for several months, and I only have three episodes. Where I just, you know, have my setup, uh, my phone on uh, my bicycle, and I go riding 8.5 miles. Yeah, I'm doing a similar one myself. I actually did the first episode today, and I have to do some posts. I'm going to see if I can enlist Hyde with this. Maybe not, but it's called Chicago Bikers or Douchebags. Uh-huh. And you're a biker, so that means, and you live in Chicago, so that means you're a douchebag. Well, you know what? I probably am, but not for the same reason. I'm not, I'm not denying douchebaggery on my part, but... Uh... Hickory dickory dack. All right. So, um... Wait a minute. So, uh, so are you saying that Howard Cosell is telling Andrew Dice Clay jokes now? <laughs> Hickory dickory dack. Right there! <laughs>